history tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to the 73rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And welcome to the second season of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Oh, that's right. This is the first podcast of season two. Oh, isn't it awesome? We want to do some shout outs to the Curiosos podcast, Patrick Keller, Greg Griffith, and all the rest of you that sent us congratulations on our one year anniversary. We greatly appreciate Appreciate that. Hope you enjoyed our anniversary show. And as a matter of fact, this show is the first one in our collaboration with our HGB research crew. Yes, it is. And Freya Porter is the one who was our research assistant on this one. Thank you so much, Freya. And we're going to be bringing you Braun Castle today. And what else is this castle known as, Denise? Dracula's Castle. I am Dracula. Now, for a lot of you, that's probably like, ooh. Ah. <laughs> but as we searched high and low and Freya searched high and low, Denise, this is not really a haunted location. Not so much. We were indeed shocked to find out that there's really nothing haunting this place. But we are going to bring you some creepy crawlies to go with it because you can't talk about Dracula's castle without talking about what? Dracula and vampires. Indeed. So we are going to discuss those in this show. And they're not the kind that sparkle. No, we don't do sparkly vampires around here. As I've told our listeners many times, I'm into the classic stories. So I'm probably, you think, a traditionalist? Yeah, and you're definitely not Team Edward. (laughs) No, (laughs) definitely not. Before we get into that, we do want to point you in the direction of our website, historygoesbump.com. It's got everything you could want to know about the show, including information on our upcoming event, which will be this Sunday, October 11th, 2015. Where are we going? We're going to the St. Augustine Lighthouse. And we are going to do dinner before that. So if you are planning on coming, make sure you get your tickets. It has all the information on the events page where you can go to do that. And then email us and let us know you're coming and we'll let you know where we're meeting for dinner. We're going to do that at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And Denise, if anybody wants to contact us for any reason, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we still are taking your stories about true haunting experiences that you've had. So if you want to get those in for the Halloween special, make sure you do that. We'll probably cut that off probably about the 25th of October. So try to get them in before that. We want to welcome to the Spectacular Crew, Trisha. Hey, Trisha, welcome. And Denise, we also got a couple of reviews over at iTunes. First one comes from Jade Lewis. You guys, I'm a big fan. It's entertaining and well-developed. I love history and scary. Great job, ladies. Five stars. Thank you so much. And love to shop 21. Five stars as well. Thank you for this wonderful podcast. I recently drove a moving truck between Seattle and Salt Lake City over 16 hours on the road. Ooh, yuck. Yuck, especially in a moving truck. No kidding. Instead of listening to music to stay alert, I decided to try your podcast. I enjoyed your conversational tone, your well-researched stories, and your well-thought-out skepticism. My favorite episode was the one on John Lennon. 
Mm, okay. I love the stories and details you had about his reported hauntings. That actually brings me to my episode request. Could you do an episode on the Silver Screen Kings of Terror, Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee, and Vincent Price? What do you think think I'm going to (laughs) say? Is this some of your favorites? Um, No? Indeed. And and that's not just one show. That is individual shows for each of those gentlemen. It has to be. And, you know, we got to throw in uh, Bella Lugosi as well. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if their ghosts are haunting anywhere, but these men were pretty creepy even when they were alive. And I do happen to know that Bella Lugosi's ghost does haunt. So I know that one does. Thank you again for this great podcast. I'm working through each episode from the beginning and only up to number 35. But if you're planning to come to Salt Lake City in the future, my wife and I would love to go on a ghost tour with you. Well, that sounds like a good plan. Yes, it does. I guess I could go back and uh, explore the city of my birth. That is where you were born. Yes, so it is. Salt Lake City. Utah. Some prestige there. Uh, one of our listeners, Brian Morse, went to the Mark Twain house. Oh, that is awesome. Now, they didn't have any hauntings go on while they were there, but his Aww. wife did brush his hair so that he would kind of get the feeling of what it would be like. <laughs> Yay, wives. But it sounds like a really cool place, so I'm a little bit jealous. I'm a lot jealous. And at the end of the show, we will be announcing a couple of other executive producers. We got two more this month, Denise. That is great. Thank you so much for that. And we are about $26 short of hitting our $100 milestone goal that we're going for. And when we do that, when we're getting $100 every month, what do we have, Denise? A contest. Indeed. So if you guys want to get some free History Ghost Bump gear, just got to get some more uh, sponsors in there, and we are set to go. And then we'll be a quarter of the way of you letting go of one of your jobs and be able to focus on this a little bit more. That would be awesome. If I could spend some more time doing this, we'd uh, be able to pump out all kinds of great stuff. All right. So are you ready? I'm to ready. go to the only place that you could possibly want to go when it's October and Halloween is coming. Transylvania. Oh, yes. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. The Vaitela is an interesting part of Indian lore. Some people mistake the Vaitela as a ghost, but these spirits actually possess the bodies of the dead. Where they originate from is uncertain, but the legends claim that the Vaitela lurk in cemeteries just waiting for a nice, fresh corpse to arrive. They jump inside and reanimate the body, but they are not satisfied with just wandering around inside a dead body. They enjoy shocking people, so they do strange things with their new homes. They turn the hands and feet backwards. While these spirits enjoy playing with humans, they also can help humans. Indians believe that the Vaitela guard their villages. Some people claim that Vaitela are vampires since they appear undead. But one distinction is that the Vaitela can wander in the daylight while vampires shun the sun. The Vaitela may just be a myth, but they certainly are odd. Are you afraid of the dark? 
that's too silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> This day in history. On this day, October 5th, in 1789, during the French Revolution, the women in the marketplaces of Paris marched on Versailles. The march was one of the most significant parts of the French Revolution. Food was scarce at the time, and bread was hard to find. When there was bread for sale, it was exorbitantly priced. The women of Paris had had enough of the prices and the scarcity, particularly when they watched how opulently the rich lived. At the same time, revolutionaries were pushing for a constitutional monarchy. As the mob of women grew and united with the revolutionaries, riots began to break out. The mob grew to thousands, and there was a call to ransack the armory. The group did just that, and with weapons in hand, they marched to Versailles. They entered the palace and violently confronted the guards and King Louis XVI. They told the king their demands, and by the next day, the king, his family, and the French assembly went to Paris. The king lost his independence, and the changing of the power structure began. This march by the women began the third estate, which signified that the French nobility was over and the balance of power was turning to the common people. Hello, kiddies! Fall has fallen, and fall means the Wicked Library Halloween special is nearly here. It will be recorded live in front of a captive audience at Rickett and Beagle Books on October 17th from 7 to 9 p.m., and the show will air on October 31st. Halloween, in other words. It's also going to be getting cold in our little village of the damned. So, in addition to the great prizes, tricks and treats, and other wicked fun, we're doing a little something we're calling blankets and books. Bring a clean used blanket to sit on for story time, and then leave the blanket before you're released. I mean, before you go. <laughs> Rickett and Beagle Books will be donating a book along with every blanket collected. Both items will be donated to the Hot Metal Bridge Faith community to distribute to the homeless. We hope you'll come by, but if you absolutely can't shamble down and still want to donate a blanket and maybe even a book of your own, drop me a line at librarian at thewickedlibrary.com and we'll get you more information. See you at Rickett and Beagle Books on the 17th, kiddies! <laughs> the History Goes Bump Podcast. Braun Castle is more famously known as Dracula Castle. Originally, the Teutonic Knights claimed this spot and had a wooden fortress on the site in the 1200s. But eventually a new castle would be built, and it possibly might have been a place where Vlad the Impaler passed through. Queen Maria of Romania would take possession in the 1920s and turn the fortress into a fairy tale castle. Bram Stoker chose this location as the setting for part of his novel, Dracula. 
Stoker never visited the castle, and thus his description does not match reality. Count Dracula never lived here either, being that he is fictitious. But the history connected to the castle gives it an ominous mystique, one that would lead many to believe the castle is haunted. But is it? And what of the lore about vampires? Are they real? Join us as we examine the history and hauntings of Bran Castle. Bran Castle was built in 1377 by King Louis I of Anjou, the Magyar King, as a military strategic fortress that blocked the trade route through the Bran Gorge, which at that time was on the border between Wallachia and Transylvania. Magyar refers to a nation and ethnic group of Hungary. The castle was built into and atop a 200-foot rocky crag. It is a magnificent stone structure that took only five years to construct. Through the years, its fortifications would be strengthened. The numerous turrets arise from the treetops along the tiled roofs. King Louis's military tactics against his enemy nation, Wallachia, heavily relied on the fortification and the blocking of gorges like Bron Gorge. The road here was heavily traveled for trade. The fortress was built to protect the Magyar Customs Center and intercept the roads through the gorge that led to Transylvania. The residents of the nearby town of Brasov eagerly helped to build the fortress because it promised new economic opportunities for the area. They were also incentivized by the promise of the return of land historically belonging to them and maintained a good relationship with the Magyar sovereignty. Amazingly, the fortress was completed within the king's reign and was the scene for a major battle between Romania and Wallachia, according to some historians. After the Romanians won the war, Bran Fortress took ownership of a lot of the surrounding lands and continued to dominate the route through Bran Gorge. Bran Fortress was in the possession of Magyar King Sigismund of Luxembourg from 1395 to 1406. During this time, he used the fortress to invade Wallachia and remove Vlad the Usurper, who was replaced by the king's ally, Mercia the Old. Bran Fortress changed hands to Mercia the Old in 1412, but only for occupation and usage, and was in his possession for six years. After Mercia the Old died in 1418, the fortress returned to Sigismund of Luxembourg and was used for defensive purposes. How would you like that to be your name? Mercia the Old. <laughs> Especially if you weren't really old. <laughs> Mercia the Old, decrepit. No. Well, I'm assuming that that was their way of saying like senior or the first, maybe. And Vlad the Usurper was the grandfather of Vlad the Impaler. Ah. And he was called the Usurper because he took the throne from Mercia the Old. So he preyed on an old man. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> assuming Mercia the Old was old. <laughs> In 1438, the Ottoman Empire launched a military campaign in Transylvania, passing back through Bran Gorge with their spoils of war. The residents of Bran were so scarred by this that they financed fortifications to Bran Fortress themselves, despite having no obligation to do so since the fortress wasn't their property. But you know what? If we had a gate out at the front of our neighborhood, I would be sitting there thinking, let's repair it if it got busted down and somebody came in and stole a whole bunch of stuff. Even though the gate's not specifically our property, I'd want to make sure oh, it was fortified. Exactly. All right, we've got some really fun words here, so I'm going to try not to butcher them. We have Ianku of Hunadora, the voivode, which is the principal commander of the military, of Transylvania. Defeated an Ottoman attack at Bron Fortress in 1442 and used the strategic position of Bron Fortress to defend Transylvania. Interestingly, the Wallachian ruler Vlad Dracul III 
known as Vlad the Impaler, who's been linked to Bram Castle in popular belief because of Bram Stoker's Dracula, actually had very little to do with the fortress's history. The connection wasn't made until much later. The name Dracul comes from the Romanian word for dragon. Vlad II was inducted into the knightly order of the dragon. Well, that's kind of a cool order. Mm -hmm. Like dragons. Vlad III had conflicts with the merchants of Brasov due to economic regulations, but attempted to follow the policies of his grandfather, Mercia the Old, and form alliance with Wallachia. However, after some conflict, the Transylvanians broke the treaty and tense relations were heightened. In 1459, Vlad started a series of punishment raids against Brasov, and in 1460, attacked the area through the Bron Gorge and destroyed it in his typical bloodthirsty way, burning crops and impaling prisoners. Vlad's favorite form of torture was reputed to be impaling people while they were alive, and rumors circulated that he dined among those dying in such fashion. 80,000 people were said to have been killed by Vlad. His barbaric reputation inspired the character of Count Dracula. And the way he impaled those people, most people have seen some of the wood carvings and such that have been made in the past that depicted this. I don't know that they were from life, but they feature him, you know, sitting at a table and they were impaled in many ways, either straight through their body, through the abdomen, or I heard one of his more favorite ways to do it was through an orifice that was already there and letting them slide down the pole. Can you imagine? No. Mm -hmm. And how you could eat around that, I don't know. Well, there was a lot of sick, sick people in some of these old castles. And of course, the people he fought for saw him as a hero because he was basically their savior. Yeah, because even with an enemy, I wouldn't want to see them killed, or nor would I be able to dine with them probably groaning, screaming, in pain, because I can't imagine they're just hanging there quiet either. Exactly. In 1462, Vlad was arrested by the Magyar king on charges of siding with their mutual enemy, the Turks, as evidenced by a letter from Brasov residents. He was released in 1476 on the insistence of Stefan the Great, ruler of Moldovia, and reached Wallachia through the Bron Gorge in an attempt to reclaim his throne. He was successfully reinstated but had a short reign before dying in a confrontation against a contender for the throne. It's believed that Vlad died in battle, but there's no significant evidence as to where and how. We're not sure if it was somebody that he was fighting for the throne, if it was just a general battle. There's no historic for sure there. So we're not really sure about that one. The other thing that we're not for sure about, and we're going to find this with one of the other figures that we're going to cover this month that is very famous when it comes to the vampire lore. I'll let people wonder what that is because we're actually not going to let anybody know what our shows are this month until you get there. They're like a big surprise. Surprise! But the rumors about this particular figure and Vlad may have been a bit hyperbolic or made up because the spoils of war go to those who've won and they also get to write history. So if you have people that you are coming up against and you really want to make them look bad, well, you'd write a history about them that is totally vicious. So we don't know how much of it might be they exaggerated what had happened or just plain made it up. So perhaps Vlad wasn't as bad as they said he was, or maybe he was. We don't know. It's one of the hard things about some of this ancient history is there's just not a ton of evidence for it. And even if people did write it down, a lot of it doesn't survive. Well, isn't that true of history today? Because the history you learn in school isn't exactly accurate either. Boy, is that the truth. And, you know, that's why so many people tell us that they learn things from our show or when I listen to other history shows, I learn so much because it's like, oh, well, that's the truth. That's not just what they put in a textbook because it sounded good. Brand Fortress changed hands from the Wallachian Beovode 
to the residents of Braun from 1497 to 1521 and was involved in the Ottoman Empire's conquest of the Hungarian Empire. When the Ottomans took over the area, their leader planned to use Braun Fortress for his military needs, but after fierce resistance, conceded to allow the Braun residents to keep the fortress for their own use. Over the next century, it was visited by political and religious representatives and the scene of a few battles, including more conflict between Wallachia and Transylvania, during which the fortress was conquered by Transylvania. In 1625, a dungeon was added to the castle and torture was believed to be practiced within the room. The residents of Braun finally regained control of the fortress when it was donated to them by the Transylvanian prince Gorgi Rakogzi II on the 24th of April, 1651. At the end of the 17th century, Transylvania became part of the Habsburg Empire, but the residents of Braun were allowed to keep Braun Castle in accordance to the 1651 treaty. Braun lost importance in 1836 when the border was moved, but was restored in the late 19th century when the castle was repaired and given to the Brasov Forestry, who occupied it until 1918. After World War I, the castle became a residence of Queen Maria of Romania, beginning its relatively short history as a royal residence. It was converted to a royal summer residence and was much loved by the queen until her death in 1938. She added windows to the arrow slits, horse stables, a tea room, children's playroom, a gaudy chapel, and extensive gardens filled with plants and animals. In 1940, Queen Maria's heart was transferred to Braun so that, according to her daughter, Princess Elena, she could be closer to her people. The princess also had the body of her beloved younger brother, Mercia, who had died in 1916 at four years old from one of the war's fever epidemics, moved to Braun to be closer to their mother, believing that they would keep each other company. It is believed that the queen's heart was placed inside a silver casket and encased in a cliff at Braun. Princess Elena ensured the upkeep of Braun Castle and during World War II founded a hospital near it and became a nurse like her mother had in World War I while her husband served in the German army. The hospital was called Queen's Heart Hospital. She was forced to leave the country in 1947 when the king abdicated but returned in 1990 to find the hospital in disarray and the castle's objects and furnishing dispersed by the communist government. Serious restoration of the castle began, and in 2014 the castle was put up for sale, although reportedly sans plumbing removed by the communists in 1958 for some reason. Queen Maria is reported to haunt another nearby castle named Palace Castle, the smell of lavender is detected by custodians at times. And I'm not sure why she haunts there, if she preferred that castle to Braun Castle, because Braun Castle is where she died and her heart is supposedly buried near there. So I'm, I'm not really sure why that is, but that was the only haunting that we could find that was connected remotely to this. Also, when we watch what's going on over in the Middle East with ISIS and how they're just destroying all of the artifacts over there, it amazes you when you see these, whether it's a totalitarian government, these communist governments, or something like ISIS that are these extremist groups, how they have no respect for history and those kinds of objects. Because you can imagine, when people go through Braun Castle now as tourists, they're really surprised by how little there is inside of it. And it's mainly because the communist government just went through and took everything. I know, it's just horrible, so much history that gets lost because of people... I guess it's part of just trying to destroy their whole existence. I don't know. A lot of it probably is they took it for money, I'm sure, because that's all that communism cares about is enriching itself. Because Braun Castle is the only surviving castle in Transylvania that fits Bram Stoker's description of Dracula's castle, 
It has captured the world's imagination as the fictional castle, and Vlad the Impaler is Count Dracula himself. Bram Stoker actually did base the castle on Bron Castle, but having never actually visited Romania, he wrote off a description of the castle. The character of Dracula was inspired by the popular stories of Vlad the Impaler, but those accounts, as we discussed earlier, of his bloodthirst were written for political purposes. The people of Bron did help imprison Vlad, so that might be why they came up with these kinds of accounts. And, you know, you're going to hold somebody longer if you think he's a whack job. Oh, absolutely. However, Stoker was careful not to make any explicit connections between Vlad the Impaler and Count Dracula in anything other than name. Which is good because the history wouldn't link up. So, <laughs> And there's no proof that Vlad drank any blood or anything like that. Although it does make for an interesting story. Yes, it does. Stoker turned to the legends and lore of vampires to build his character Dracula after being inspired by stories of Vlad's bloodlust. And the character is also based on the local myths of the Bron area. For centuries, the people firmly believed that evil spirits called Sterigoi lived among them. These ghosts led normal lives during the day, but at night, while asleep, their souls left the bodies and haunted the villages, tormenting people in their sleep. These evil spirits haunted their prey from midnight until dawn, when their power to harm people faded. So what's interesting about that legend is it says that they're ghosts who led normal lives, so it almost makes you think that they were inside of somebody, possessing somebody's body, and then they would leave the body they were possessing to do something. So I don't know that I would necessarily refer to them as ghosts as I would an evil spirit. Very much so. However, while the castle is, of course, extremely creepy, especially at night, and this is a place that gets a lot of those mists, so you just imagine in the early morning hours or at twilight with the mist coming in. The reports of hauntings are minimal. In fact, Freya couldn't find any evidence at all of its being haunted. Even the TV series Ghost Hunters International didn't find anything there. And Freya pointed out that, you know, they would have attributed a mouse squeak to cries of the undead. So Did if you they, hear that? Yeah, exactly. So if they didn't find anything, it's probably not there. Uh, you know, of course, they don't spend a long period of time in right. a location. So I wouldn't necessarily say, well, there's absolutely nothing there because they didn't find something. But like she said, if something would have gone creak, they would have been like, whoa. At least tried to find out what it was. Because one thing, they are good at trying to dispel things. But exactly. They do, they do go after every creak and noise. Exactly. The castle does offer some fabulous events around Halloween to celebrate its history and popular culture, including ghost tours, although nothing has ever been seriously documented. It seems that the castle has gained notoriety as a haunted attraction only for its traditional creepy decor and popular connections to Dracula not because it actually is haunted. And when I went through, I was looking at some of the ghost tours and things, and there's some that go to a whole bunch of different locations. It looks like great fun. And of course, you got the little trailers at the end, and they all have their little carved Draculas and vampires. I mean, they're taking it for all for all it's worth when it comes to uh, monetary means and things. Well, much as Salem did around all the witch lore that we noticed, every shop had had their witch. This seems to be the perfect setting to explore the lore of vampirism. The term vampire became a part of the English language in 1732, but the folklore surrounding vampirism dates back centuries. At its very base, a vampire is a revenant. A revenant is a human corpse or the undead that rises from its grave. In most cases, the revenant is harmful to humans. Depending on the culture, a revenant can be either a spirit, a walking corpse, or a demon. It's possible that these legends go back to ancient Egypt. 
That's a long time to go back to, but you think about it, something that rises from the dead and drinks blood or eats flesh. I mean, it's possible it goes back all that way. Yeah, definitely. As a matter of fact, I was listening to a show. It wasn't Phil's, but it was another one that was talking about zombies. And they actually referenced, I wish I could remember now, there is a sentence in the Bible and they sound like, or it might even be a whole passage. And I think it's supposed to be something that happens near the end times where people, it sounds like, they're zombies. I'll have to see if I can find that because it was very interesting. And I was like, wow, that's weird. Yeah. Zombies in the Bible. Well, they say that there's nothing new, new, right? Everything under the sun. Under nope. the sun. Yep. The characteristics of the vampire include the ability to take the form of an animal like a dog, bat, or wolf. They are pale with lips that can be a deep red depending on whether they have recently fed. They generally do not cast a reflection into a mirror and they have to avoid the daylight. Holy water and crosses repel them. These are considered the traditional characteristics. Some stories vary from this, you know, like sparkly vampires. The one core characteristic is the need for a vampire to consume blood. The story element that being bitten by a vampire means that you will become a vampire is actually pretty recent, Denise. So this wasn't something that was always part of the traditional lore. It was actually thought to be possible that one could be born a revenant. Folklorist Paul Barber wrote in his 2008 book, Vampires, Burial, and Death, Folklore and Reality, that centuries ago, quote, often potential revenants can be identified at birth, usually by some abnormality, some defect, as when a child is born with teeth. Similarly suspicious are children born with an extra nipple, in Romania, for example, with a lack of cartilage in the nose or a split lower lip, in Russia. When a child is born with a red call or amniotic membrane covering its head, this was regarded throughout much of Europe as presumptive evidence that it is destined to return from the dead. Can you imagine? You're born with your amniotic sac still around you, and that means you're going to come back from the dead. Well, I mean, I can see because so many of the things that demonized or or made people into monsters were a lot of things that are just birth defects as we know them today, you know, Mm -hmm. that needed treatment and help but instead they just got completely i mean you can just go through the list of all these people that were kind of locked up and teased and people horrified by them and they it was just birth defects we've discussed freak shows on Mm -hmm. the on the podcast and that was a lot of what freak shows were were people who just you know had a birth defect how did such a legend get started it comes down to ancient people not understanding decay The typical human corpse goes through a series of changes as it decomposes. Generally, we would not know about these changes unless we dug somebody up. And that is what they did, dug people up. Someone would get sick in town and rumors would start that somebody had returned from the dead. The disinterred corpse would appear to still have growing hair and nails and blood would possibly be streaming from the mouth or nose. Internal decay causes bloating, forcing blood out of the body. Nails and hair seemed to continue to grow because the skin would pull back as the body dried. And if the circumstances were right, a body might be preserved for a long period of time. So you might disinter Jane Doe, who's been in just the right circumstances in possibly a humid, moist grave. And so they've been preserved for, say, three months and you dig her up and it's like, huh? She's still like she was the day we put her in here. She must be undead. Well, depending on what they were eating, because did you know fact that Americans decompose slower than anywhere else in the world? Well, with all the preservatives we eat, mm-hmm. I wouldn't doubt it. Yep, but that's what they said, because we eat all the preservatives and Twinkies and all that stuff that we have a slow decomposing rate. Plus, we do get embalmed. A lot of people do get embalmed. And that's another thing that preserves the body. 
So it takes you a little bit longer. The means of dispatching a vampire vary, but generally a wooden or iron stake is driven through the heart and the vampire's head is cut off. Unearthed, ancient burials reveal that some people were buried either pinned under a rock or with a boulder jammed into their mouths. Archaeology magazine reported in 2013 that two graves in Bulgaria contained bodies that had been pinned to the ground by iron stakes. Apparently the iron affects vampires in some way. They don't like it, which is weird because blood is full of iron. I don't think I would like an iron stake driven through me either. Well, no, that would not be pleasant. (laughs) Or gold or any other precious. Oh, isn't it pretty? Ah, not so much. (laughs) And I actually on my Where History Lies blog uh, did an article on vampire burials. And I had some pictures there of, you know, these skulls that had these huge boulders jammed into the mouth. So the jaws, you know almost totally disengaged from itself so they could get that boulder in there. And apparently they thought they couldn't lift their hands up to take it out of their mouth. So I don't know why they thought that would keep them from sucking blood, but... Well, it depends on how open they had the mouth and how jammed in they had it because they might be not able to to unlock the jaw enough to get it out, whether they could reach it or not. Of course, one of the key things I didn't notice was any fangs. So I don't know if back then part of their popular lore was that there were fangs that were used to... You know, when I was a kid, I thought it was the fangs that actually sucked the blood up, kind of like straws. But I think with the fangs where we're basically so you could just chew an opening to get to the jugular. You know, when you look at the classic... Dracula, and you think about some of the vampire movies they show, it just shows, you know, two little holes. There's a couple punctures, and that's how you know. I think it's more realistic. They had a recent miniseries that was Dracula. It was supposed to be a series, but it only lasted for one season that I really enjoyed because it had elements of the Victorian era and steampunk and all that in there. I think NBC did it. That one was a lot more realistic with, uh, you know, just tearing into the throat to get to the blood. Brancastle gained its notoriety through Bram Stoker's fiction. But the elements of the story were inspired by true historical elements. Whether there are hauntings at Brown Castle or not, there is no doubt that the castle will always hold a mystique, and the popularity of vampires only seems to grow. Do the undead walk among us as either spirits or vampires? That is for you to decide. Well, that was fun. I absolutely love vampires. I love the story of Dracula. We actually got to interview a woman who wrote a book about Bram Stoker, I believe, a couple of years ago. And uh, so maybe I will dig that out of the uh, mothballs. And I'm thinking about some of the extra shows that we put out that are for extra content. Taking some of these interviews that we used to do when we uh, did the Twilight Hour for that brief little moment that we did that. And put some of that material out for everybody to hear. Because we did some really awesome interviews with some great people. Yeah, some fantastic people. They were really interesting. So I might dig those out. Our next show is on... I guess you'll just have to wait to find out. I was about to say, wait, wait, wait. Don't tell them. We're not supposed to. (laughs) She psyched us. Indeed. We want to thank you guys for hanging out with us as we get ready to come into Halloween. I just can't wait. We're decorating for Halloween today, as a matter of fact. Yes, we are. I get to get all the little things out and put out my new stuff that I just bought. Oh, it's going to be fun. And then we have some new stuff to get. It's raining outside, so I'll have to wait to do the outside for a little bit. But the inside's definitely going to be going. Mm-hmm. You guys, thanks so much for listening. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers of this show have been... Dan Foytick. Janice Carlson. Patty Hunt. Rachel Cooper. Levi Drescher. Stephen Pappas. Jade Lewis. Heather Williams. David Ann Student. Amy Connor. Tanya Turner. And Nicole Johnson. Thank you. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher.
We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. Thank you.